you're familiar or not familiar with the, New, with the Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's a letter that was written by Paul to one of the churches that he had established years and years ago. And for many people who have read through the New Testament, it's one of their favorite books. It's a good place to go if you don't know where to go. Read the book of Philippians a few times. You might uh, be inspired by it. And, and the reason it's uh, popular is because it's a, it's a popular theme. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy in the midst of our struggles. And, you know, that who doesn't need some of that and who doesn't have struggles, right? So uh, this week we're going to talk about how, how life can be confusing and the beautiful mess that life is, that our families can be, that our churches can be, and that, that this world around us gets to be from time to time. It's Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, if you want to follow along, it's in your program. The Word of God. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, continue and work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, because God is at work in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you might become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. One thing I've noticed as I've gotten older, maybe some of you have noticed this as well, is that life, as you get older, you notice that life is complicated and things sometimes are hard to figure out and sometimes things aren't hard to figure out. They're actually like impossible to figure out. Like sometimes the people who are, we have our closest friendships with are also people who we have the deepest conflicts with. And sometimes our most intimate relationships are places where we experience passionate love and at the same time these passionate fights. And we're like, how can these two things go together in the same connection? Or we have these families full of people who we can't live without, but we can't live with either. Well, like, what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think this is true in our lives as well. There's a spiritual sense in which life can be uh, confusing, where uh, we feel like God is on the move in our life, and we're growing, and we're learning, and, and, and we, we feel God's hand and God's work in our life. And at the same time, we're facing deep conflict or deep challenges and really confusing things that, that we just can't make sense of. And, and sometimes that's true, honestly, sometimes that's true in the church. Sometimes the most fruitful times in, a, in, a, in any particular church's life are also the most challenging times. And well, when people on the one hand are seeing God at work and seeing God's power poured out, and then at the same time and in the same body, they're seeing real problems and real struggles all at once because life is confusing. This was the way it was in the church at Philippi as we've been going through this book, the book of Philippians. Uh, what we've seen is that this was a place, a church where God was on the move, and yet at the same time, it was a church that was experiencing deep conflict and profound challenges. 
the church at Philippi was one of the churches that was closest to Paul, one of the churches that he liked the most, you know, and, and it was also a church that continued to stay connected with him, and they supported his ministry and supported his work, and yet Paul was worried because of some reports he had heard that the church was deeply divided. In fact, he was worried that the whole ministry might be at risk because of some leadership issues they apparently had in the church. So on the one hand, this was a a blessed community, a community that had this great origin story you can read about in Acts chapter 16 in a place where God had worked powerfully. And then Paul looks at them and says, I'm not even sure if you guys are going to make it given some of the issues you can, you have. And so that's, that's, what provoked Paul to write this letter, and that's what he turns to now as he, as he continues to address the book of, of Philippians. And, and I, I want to go through this in, in three points. The first one is this, that Paul tells them that we've got to practice a paradox as we go. This is one of the classic passages, a, a proof text for explaining how God works in our lives and in our world. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Because God is at work in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Paul says two things are 100% true at the same time. To be seeking God, to be seeking to know God, to be seeking to honor God, you've got to be working at it. And you've got to work it out with fear and trembling. And and the the language in the original is even more more, uh, stronger than that, where he's saying you've got to be meticulous and intentional at working to grow in your faith and grow closer to God. And at the same time, you've got to know that God is at work in your life and God is the one who's going to make it possible. The language is deliberate on both sides. On the one hand, we've got to work. And on the other hand, God has got to work. And those two together are what enable us to make progress in our lives. As one of my friends said, it's 100% by the grace of God that we progress, but we've got to work like it's 100% our effort that enables us to progress. And some people ask the question, what's more important, my work in trying to uh, seek God or God's work in working in my life? And And I I heard someone put it this way, if you're about to run a race, what's more important, your right leg or your left leg, right? We need both of them at the same time. Amy got that one. (laughs) So, uh, and and, and this is is true of of the Christian Christian life uh, across the board. It's it's something that I've noticed is true in a lot of areas. Like like some of us have gone through like like addiction recovery, the 12-step program, and one of the things they tell you on the on the one hand, first and foremost, you've got to be willing to surrender, to surrender to God and believe that God is going to help you. And then on the other hand, you've got to work the program. It works if you work it, so keep coming back. And it's not one or the other, but you've got to surrender and you've got to work. And that's the way the Christian life works. You've got to be willing to surrender and you've got to be willing to work. And 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 through that, we make progress. The theologian John Murray put it this way, God works and we also work, but the relationship is because God works, we work. All the working out of salvation on our part is really just the effect of God working in us. This is the incentive for our willing and for our working. To be a follower of Christ means that God is at work in us, and that inspires us. Knowing God is at work in us inspires us 
to work harder to become what God wants us to be. Now, Paul gets specific at what he needs these people to work on. He says, in the next paragraph, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. See, and what Paul's alluding to there is real tensions at the church that threaten the very viability of this congregation and of that ministry. And, you know, I've, I've found that that's true almost anywhere. Someone once said, wherever two or more are gathered, there's going to be conflict in the midst of them. You know, you get a bunch of people together with a bunch of different opinions. There's, it's inevitable that there's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be people who are unhappy and people who are struggling for one reason or another. And so, so Paul, Paul says, I've heard there's real tensions in the church. There's complaining and there are, there's arguing in the church. And we've got to figure out how to work through that, to work past that, and to resolve our conflict in a healthy way. And, and you know, the problem in our relationships, the problem in our churches, the problem in, in society is not that we have conflict. Conflict's kind of inevitable. But the problem in your family and the problem with your friends is that when conflict comes up, the problem with your roommates is that when conflict comes up, you, you address it in an unhealthy way that makes the conflict worse not better. You address it in a way that makes the conflict explode rather than makes the conflict go away or dissipate. And, you know, the church is notorious for this. And I've mentioned this before, but it's something that made an impression on me, especially when I was new here. I was, I was talking to a lot of people in Jersey City, just people I'd meet a, along the way from all different backgrounds and uh, tell them I was a pastor, tell them I was coming here to start a new church. And often I'd say, well, what's, what's your experience in church? And, and, and there were just so many people I talked to along the way, and maybe this is some of your experience as well, where, who, people who grew up in the church, and that, but, but while they were growing up, they witnessed such, uh, such conflict and such disagreement and schisms and church fights. And there's no, no, no fight that's worse than a church fight, really. It's kind of the worst of all fights. And they experience so many of these kinds of things that they're just like, I don't need it anymore. Whatever the church is supposed to have, I can get it elsewhere because of the conflicts they had. And because nothing destroys a family, nothing destroys a friendship, nothing destroys a church even, than conflicts that are not resolved in a healthy way. Uh, and, and not addressed in a fruitful way. And that's the killer of the witness. Like I say, there are, are hundreds, maybe thousands of people in this city today who wouldn't think of going to church because of bad experiences they had and pathetic things they, they, they saw in the churches they participated in or they got drugged to when they were little kids. But this is not inevitable. There's another possibility. The flip side of this is if you can have a church where there's harmony, where there's unity, where there's love, not uniformity and not always everybody agreeing, but working through challenges and working through issues in a healthy way, then there's powerful potential. And that's what Paul alludes to. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you might become blameless and pure and children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the skies. You hold firmly to the word of life. See, Paul sees this great potential in the church, this potential that somehow, some way, if they can agree, if they can work together, and if they can put their arguments, resolve their issues, 
that they could be this bright and shining star in their, er in their area. You know, and that's the possibility for the church at Philippi, the potential for the church at Philippi, that they, that they would be recognized as children of God, that they would shine like the stars, and that they would hold out for, hold out the word of, word of life. And that's the, that, that's the potential that they had to, to glorify God that way, to bless their city that way, to to help one another, and to reflect the grace of God to a watching world. And that's, that's the opportunity of the gospel message as it works through the church. He says, what I want you to do, what you can be, is a group of people that shines like stars in the universe. And this is kind of an allusion back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that the church is, is a light to the world. And as God works in us, as God works through us, if we're faithful and we pursue him, that's what we can be. That's the potential of what we can be. That because the world has problems and the world has challenges that the gospel community is uniquely positioned to address. And you know, we heard a little bit about that when we talked about the, the code camp that Sam's leading and, and teaching, teaching people who wouldn't have those opportunities how to program computers and, and things like that. That's just one little example of that. But this just goes to, to make the point that there's something bigger at stake than just us, just, just our disagreements, just our opinions, just our desires, and just our preferences. What's really at stake in all this is the mission and the purpose of the church and and the potential that the church has if we're faithful and if God is at work in us to make an impact on this world. You know, I, I think a group of inspired and happy and committed and purposeful Christians can make a difference in a whole city. And my hope for a generation from now when, you know, everything has changed is that there's people around Jersey City and around our state and around our country who are deeply committed to their faith. And when someone asks them, why are you so committed? Why are you so committed in your church? Why are you so committed to following Christ? Why are you so committed to living the way you do? They say, well, back in uh, 2017 when I was living in Jersey City, I was part of this little church that met in this, uh, this little school cafeteria, and I saw something there, and I learned something there, and it made an impression on me, and it, it moved me to decide to commit my life to following Christ. Just as there are people who are marked today because of the church fights and the church brokenness they saw growing up, tomorrow there could be a population of people who are marked by seeing the power of the church, the power of the kingdom of God, the power of the gospel working through us as a congregation to make an impact on our world. Because it's really about something bigger than just us. And the, and the decisions we make, the actions we take are going to echo through our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. So, so there's a paradox we gotta, we got to recognize that it's God's work and our, our work. There's potential in all of us. There's potential in us right here to shine like stars in the universe for generations to be affected by the work that we do as a church. And, and then 
then the last thing I want you to see is a basis for personal peace. Paul lays out the options. He says, okay, guys, I established your church, and you, know, and you guys might, it might all be for nothing, or you might shine like stars in the universe, but, but, but we'll see what happens. Look at what he says here in verse 14. He says, if you shine like stars in, in the universe, then I'll be able to boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I'll rejoice with all of you. So Paul actually thinks this. He says, as much as I love this church in Philippi, as much as I've seen God work here, as much as I've seen lives change through this ministry, as much as God has moved here, the future of this church is at stake. And it might be that all of my work here was for naught. It might be that I ran or labored in vain for you people. He does not know. He's kind of worried about it. He's concerned. That's one of the things that moved him to write this letter. Can you relate to him? Do you know what it is to be deeply concerned about someone, to, to care profoundly for someone and not be sure that things are going to work out or to pour your life into someone or into a relationship and then have a sense that, that this might all fall apart. You know, to, I think it, it's, it's an occupational hazard of being willing to care. If you minister to someone in need, you're trying to help them, and then you're not sure that, the, that it's going to take, that it's going to work out. Or you have a friend who's struggling, and you say, I'm really going to do anything I can to help this friend get through this, but then you're not sure that that friend is going to actually be able to get on their feet. Or, or you have a family member, a brother, a sister, a parent that, that you, you, you're working with and, 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 and you're trying to help them, but you're just wondering, is this really going to make a difference? Or perhaps the worst is when it's your own child and, and you work with your kid and, you're, and you have concerns for your kid and you see them moving in a direction and you say, you, you say, what, what is going to happen here? When we give ourselves to ministry, when we give ourselves to helping others, when we give ourselves to assisting others, when we give ourselves to making a difference in others, sometimes you wonder what is going to become of these efforts. And sometimes that concern can keep us up at night. Maybe sometimes you wonder if you'll ever be able to stop worrying. But, you know, here's the thing. To live and to live a life of meaning, to live a life that's worth living, means you will have a concern for other people. That's not optional. That's of the essence of what life is. To care enough about people that you do worry about them, that you do invest in them, that you do sacrifice for them, that you do try to help them. But to live a life where you care about people, to live a life where you're sacrificing for people, to live a life where you're invested in people, means you're going to live a life with a lot of worries. You're going to live a life with a lot of anxiety as you wonder about how these things are going to work out. You know, I mean, I mean perhaps the, the biggest example of this or the obvious example of this is being being a parent, and you know what, from what I've observed, the good thing about being a parent is you have a child, and you only have to worry about that child usually for 40 or 50, maybe 60 years, and then you die, and you don't have to worry anymore. And, and so, but, but that, that's, that's the challenge of life. I mean, the reality of life is the things that give your life meaning are the relationships that you care enough 
to invest in. But then at the same time, those relationships that you care enough to sacrifice for and invest in are the things that are going to keep you awake at night. And so that's what's happening to Paul. He's so close to the church at Philippi, so invested in the church at Philippi, and, and yet he wonders, based on the reports he's hearing, that maybe this was all for naught. He says, maybe I ran or, and labored with you guys, and it's all going to be in vain. He's like, like, right now, I'm not quite sure it hangs in the balance. It might all blow up. My ministry might be for naught. But then he says, you know, if so, that's okay too. He says, even if that's the case, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you because if that's the case, then I've just poured my life out like a drink offering. Now, what does he mean by a drink offering? It's not what you think. It's not what you think, Adam. It's, <laughs> it's something else. <laughs> What's a drink offering? It actually goes back to the Old Testament, and, and at harvest time, they'd, they'd have these, these sacrificial times where, where the, the guys would... Uh, would bring the, the first fruits from their vineyards and they bring it to the priest. And as a sacrifice, the priest would take, take the bowl of wine, the bowl of grape juice, and he'd pour it out on the altar. And it would be a sacrifice to God. And it would seem, you know, to someone looking on, someone who was thirsty would say, gee, I would have drunk that. But it was what it symbolized is they were making a sacrifice of the first fruits of their harvest to God himself. And what Paul is saying is, if everything I do seems like it's for naught, if everything I do seems like it hasn't really accomplished anything, then maybe my life is just a, a sacrifice. My, maybe my life is just a drink offering that's being poured out, and I'm going to leave the results to God. And so Paul says, I've been faithful to my call. I've given everything I have to this relationship. I've given everything I have to this church. And what happens at the end of the day, that's up to God. And so I'm simply going to trust in him. And so as you give your life or, or pour into your friends, pour into your family, pour into people who God puts in your life who you're trying to help, you know, it's good to be willing to give everything you've got to these relationships. But at the same time, what we learn from Paul is recognize that ultimately the sacrifice is not to that person. The sacrifice is for God himself. And we do what we do for our friends, for our family, for our neighbors. We do it for God, and the results are up to him. And this is the model of Paul, but it also points us to another model. Look at how he starts. Even in here, there's something that's assumed in this passage that I didn't bring up yet. He says, Therefore, the very first ver word of the passage, therefore, my dear friends. And so he's building on something else. And someone had said, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to figure out what the therefore is there for, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't make much sense. In this case, what is the therefore? Therefore, right before this, if you scroll up in the book of Philippians, he's talking about the life of Christ and the work of Christ and, and how confusing the work of Christ was to every one who saw it, because Jesus was in very nature God, and then he became man. But he didn't become glorious among men. He became a servant among men. And then as a servant, 
he didn't have victory. Rather, he got a, had a few guys who followed him and then his followers abandoned him. He came to his, his people to be their Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they wanted, so they rejected him. And then he came to the Roman authorities and they crucified him. Remember that story? And it was the messiest story, the biggest, most spectacular failure of, of anyone who, who came along trying to uh, rescue everybody. It was a story that no one expected because see everybody in Jesus day in the first century they were looking for a messiah just not a messiah that looked like the one that God sent not a messiah that looked like Jesus so to his followers he was a failed messiah because in in the imagination of the first century Israel there was no such thing as a messiah who got crucified a messiah who got crucified was not the messiah and sometimes you know, our lives will feel that way, like we're doing everything the right way, we're doing everything with good intentions, and then things don't work out the way that we expected. And it seems like all of our service and sacrifice and commitment and passion and love and devotion is for naught. But we can remember the story of the Messiah. Remember that God works out things that are confusing to us in ways that we can't even understand because God never wastes a, a sacrifice. And God's story for your life, God's story for your family, God's story for your friends is greater and more complicated and more amazing than anything you can imagine. And so the purpose is that you're seeking to accomplish in in Jesus' name, the sacrifices that you're making in Jesus' name are going to accomplish the purpose that God has for your life. I mean, we know that's true of Paul and Philippi because apparently his letter made some kind of an impact because here we are 2,000 years later and we're talking about Paul the Apostle and we're talking about the church at Philippi. Uh, you know, someone saved this letter. I think it, it probably had its effect. But most of all, we know it's true because we know the story of Jesus, the Messiah who came, who was rejected by his people, who was abandoned by his followers, who was crucified by Rome, was buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he rose again from the dead. It says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the promise you have, the assurance you can have if you follow him and if you serve in his name, if you sacrifice in his name, is that the same power that raised him from the dead will take your sacrifices, will take your service, will take your faith and use it to create something that's more beautiful and more glorious than anything you can imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the success of Christ. Thank you that while the grave could not hold him and his failure and suffering seemed catastrophic, you turned even his tragedy into glory. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here, and particularly those who are facing tragedy or facing difficulty today, I pray that you would show them the path to hope, the path to light, the path to glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.